Welcome to this Festival of Archaeology Career in Ruins special brought to you by the Council for British Archaeology and I'm here in Arne in Dorset and I'm with Neil Redfern and we're actually walking on our way to see a real-life Iron Age roundhouse. I'm Lawrence Shaw and, well, Derek's not here today, but I'll come on to that in a bit. Uh, a couple of weeks back, we were contacted by Neil Redfern uh, at the Council for British Archaeologists, and he asked us if we'd like to support him on a bit of a crazy activity that he's up to during the two weeks of the Festival for Archaeology. He asked us, myself and Derek, to identify our favourite area locally that we like to use, visit, utilize, um, explore, and, and take him for a walk there. He, he didn't really explain why, but uh, we thought, okay. Um, problem with that is that Derek got really excited and booked a ticket to Athens. So he's not actually here today, but, um, but what we agreed on originally was to go somewhere in Poole Harbour, because I, I live in Poole, which is not too far from, from where we are today, and, and Derek lives near Corfe. As the crow flies, we live about 10 miles from each other, but what we have in the middle of that is a giant, inland harbour, naturally a created harbour, one of the largest harbours in, in, in the world, if certainly in Europe. And it's a pretty amazing place, if I'm honest. Found along the western edge of Pool Harbour is the Purbeck National Nature Reserve, which is a large area comprised of a number of land holdings uh, and different owners, including the RSPB, Royal Society for Protection of Birds, National Trust, Forestry England, private landowners and a number of other individuals such as Natural England and, and this is one of the newest national nature reserves and it's a pretty special area that varies from woodland to heathland um, to intertidal uh, coastal flats and, and everything in between and actually it's one of Derek and mine's favourite place to be. Derek lives within the National Nature Reserve um, and I live just outside from Poole, across the water, and actually where we're stood right now in the chosen location, which is Arne, um, I can actually see my house and Derek's farm from, from a single location. So it's, it's an awesome place, but the reason it's so important to us is because it offers us a whole series of things that we're, that we're interested in. Um, we live here, as I said. We, we live very close to here. We can see the location from our homes. Um, it's one of our favourite places for recreation. We run, we walk, we cycle, and we even take part in orienteering races around here. Um, there's also our own research interests here. So Derek has had in the past excavations on salt works. Uh, he has his place project, which looks at the, the larger Purbeck uh, landscape. Um, and in more recent months, we had the Career and Ruins YouTube series, which looked at an excavation just over the hill from where we are right now. Um, we also both work or have work associations with, it, with this area. So Derek obviously lives and works on the farm and, uh, and has students out doing research. And part of the National Nature Reserves is, is a large area of woodland that's managed by Forestry England. Um, so, so the area itself is, is amazing. It's beautiful. It's called a nature reserve, which we'll come on to that, that, that particular word, uh, the idea of nature and natural in a bit. But... Um, but it's, it's pretty special to us, this whole area, and there are other things going on that, that we'll touch on later on in the podcast. But for now, whilst Derek's not here, 
we, we do have two substitutes, two arguably better substitutes to, to Derek. So the, the, the main one, and probably the best one, and the purpose for being here, is Neil Redfern. So Neil, welcome to Career in Ruins. Thank you, Lawrence. It's fantastic to be here. It's great to have you along, and it's such a nice sunny day, and there's so many great things to talk about, and it's just a pleasure to be showing you around around the National Nature Reserve. So, so thank you for joining us. I guess to kick off with, I've alluded that you're up to a, a, an interesting adventure, but do you want to give us a bit more background about what you're up to and, and, and perhaps give our listeners a bit of a background of what the Festival of Archaeology is and, and what, what's going on? Yeah. Um, thanks. So, um, obviously, as the director of the CBA, um, we run the annual Festival of Archaeology each year. It's in, in two weeks in July. Um, this year, it's from the 17th of July until the 1st of August. And really, it's best described as the largest crowdsourced archaeological festival in the UK, if not in Europe. And really, we bring all sorts of projects to the fore. Um, they submit um, activities and things they want to do, presentations, site visits, excavations, up onto the festival website, and we just act like a giant um, megaphone and basically have two weeks shouting about how brilliant archaeology is. Um, last year we did the theme of climate change, which is really, really good in itself um, because it's a really important day. And even today we've carried that on. So the, we've got a takeover day of the festival today, which is on climate. Uh, so again, you can go on to the website and find out lots of information about how heritage and archaeology contributes to climate. So we can get some really good messages out. We can talk about how relevant archaeology is today, which is really important. There's a really good podcast created by, I think it's called Career in Ruins. I think it was created last year, maybe, that people I, could listen to. I believe there's an excellent podcast created by Career in Ruins last year, which is where I first met you. And I believe I was sitting on my bed in my bedroom to do <laughs> the that podcast. The year makes, eh? Hey? <laughs> totally different, which is amazing. And, and that's why this year we chose the theme Exploring Local Places. We all hoped we'd be out of lockdown. We are. It's not completely freedom in many ways. There's still huge amounts of challenges. But we wanted to have a theme that enabled people to explore their local places. We've seen it throughout the COVID pandemic. People have become more interested in their local places. Well, what does that mean for archaeology? So we had the theme Exploring Local Places. I've been in post since the 2nd of April 2020, and I've, I've actually not met anybody. <laughs> So this was really an opportunity for me to get out to meet CBA volunteers, just society volunteers, people like yourselves, people doing excavations, people who are putting on events for the festival and, you know, say thank you, but also talk to them to unlock what they love about the places they live in. And so for me, that's why I chose the theme of my tour is all about um, walking and talking your way because I want to listen to you so actually when you change it round to walking and talking our way on your behalf that's exactly what I'm trying to get across what are your stories about the places you live in and already I have learned so much so when I was in Walton on the Nays um, I learned all about copperas I'd never experienced copperas before copperas is basically iron pyrite that's leached into other living materials and sort of semi-fossilizes it so literally walking wow. along the beach you pick up all these bits of copper pyrite uh, sorry iron pyrite basically and when you hit them together you're hitting what look like sticks together but they sound metallic <laughs> you can go on my twitter account and you can actually see me doing it 
but basically it was processed in 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 the late medieval period um uh, moving right up until the 1850s um to create um uh, dye fixants for the cloth industry to create ink and to create sulfur that went into into gunpowder and it's just like that's amazing you're on there and picking up so I've learned that um, obviously you were out with me last night and you took me uh, into the new forest and amazingly I came across these structures I've never heard of before bee gardens which again just brilliant totally unique seemingly to that bit of landscape so all about this how do we go out and explore and what does that actually mean so that's the festival reason but also there's a personal reason about why I'm doing this. So unfortunately my mum passed away last year. She was a huge inspiration for me. She drove this idea that you've always got to be curious, you've got to be inquisitive. There's no point sitting around. Go out and look at things, go out, you know. She was brilliant when she was older, after her hip replacements, she used to have her walking stick and she would poke absolutely everything <laughs> to find out what it was. Turn a stone over, look at a plant. It was brilliant, yeah. So what I'm actually doing is I'm doing a bit of fundraising as well. So I've set myself a challenge to walk 100 miles over the 16 days of the festival, which means I've got to actually do six and a quarter miles every single day. Okay. okay. So part of what we're doing now is getting those miles up, is trying to raise that actual sponsorship. But again, it's about trying to make those connections. And my three charities I've chosen are the um, Macmillan Cancer Support, Mum had a Macmillan nurse at the end of her care period who was unbelievably brilliant. Just three visits, it's like they were family friends, unbelievable. Um, then the Scottish Cranach Centre, which is quite appropriate, us being whilst Bronze Age, we're next to an Iron Age structure. Unfortunately, their main roundhouse uh, on, on, on the stilts in the lake burnt down, so I want to do some fundraising for them. And then obviously, I want to do some fundraising for the Council of British Archaeology because without fundraising, membership and volunteer support, um, we don't function as an organisation. That's really important to remember. And on that membership front, is what, what's the best way for people to get involved with the Council for British Archaeology? So the best way is they can become members. And we've got a fantastic offer on during the festival at the moment that you can get half price membership if you want to, or if you already subscribe to our magazine, British Archaeology, you can upgrade that, uh, that subscription to a full membership for no extra cost. So a fantastic way, because that then enables me to have the staff and have the team to put the festival on. And this year, the response for the festival has been amazing. We have over 400 events um, listed, 400 activities, which is truly fantastic. You know, that's way more than we had last year. So it's definitely growing and there's definitely energy behind this. And it's just a great way to learn how to get into archaeology, learn how to celebrate archaeology, but also just ask great questions about what it is uh, in our environment around us that makes us so attached to it. That's brilliant. Thank you for that lovely overview there. And so we started the podcast and I gave you a bit of background as to why we're here, what, why it's so special to Derek and myself. Um, and, and I guess one of, one of the nagging things to me for here, largely within my role either when I was previously at a national park or with, within Forestry England, is the historic environment falling a bit short um, in terms of its recognition. Um, so we're in a national nature reserve, we're in the, an, the RSPB on, so an area specifically excited or interested in for its bird, bird interests. Um, but we're in a 
entirely cultural landscape, entirely man man-made landscape, whether it's the Sultans just over the by the water edge over there, whether it's the Second World War gun battery past that tree over there, whether it's the, the Bronze Age round barrows on, on, on the ridge to our left, or whether it's Corfe Castle just, just over there, or just the entire heathland that's surrounding us produced perhaps during the, the Bronze Age through the clearance of trees. Um, we're overlooking Brownsea Island, which was a huge Iron Age um, port, and, and there, there's some submerged structures there, the Iron Age boat and pool, pool harbour. Um, but it all just gets overlooked, and um, I, I wonder what, what your thoughts were on that. Okay, um, I'd go even deeper than that. We're, we're standing next to this amazing Iron Age roundhouse that's made entirely out of natural resources, okay? But actually to the other side of us, there is a line of Scotch pine that um, in one first look at them, they're entirely natural trees, but they're not. They're actually, they're all planted in a line. They're a windbreak. This is actually how humans used natural resources and natural things to actually craft and create an existence in these places. We're surrounded by an awful lot of bracken at the moment. That used to be harvested for bedding, for bedding for cattle, for bedding for humans. It was a resource that was actually used. You said it earlier, this is a cultural landscape. And, I, and, and, and in many ways, what does that actually mean? Well, we are challenged at the moment that we always talk about the natural environment or the historic environment. And I think that's wrong. There is one environment. Yeah. And culturally, it's significant to us, whether that's for natural reasons or historical reasons. Yeah. And the natural environment is a cultural construct in its own right, because humans add that value. But what's more important is our entire livelihood and well-being depends on this environment. Yeah. So actually, when you start talking and thinking about it, I don't mind this as an actual nature reserve because that's a cultural construct in its own right. And actually, it gives us opportunities to talk about what the, the aspects of that cultural construct we love and like, which is time depth, which is actually how humans have adapted and lived on this actual landscape. But there are always challenges in that. And, you know, my, 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 my personal sort of pet hate is the concept of rewilding, yeah? I completely believe in the idea that some parts of this landscape we need to allow to flourish in their own right. And that is actually about removing an element of human management. But the removal of that human management is actually a human management decision. So it's actually, you're not rewilding, you're actually taking a, a live active management decision to do something different. And we see that throughout human existence on this planet. Sometimes we decide that we want to move into a landscape and we want to change it from grazing to arable. Sometimes we decide the arable's not functioning well enough and we go back to grazing. It's, an, it's a constant interplay. Don't forget trees. <laughs> well, how can I forget trees with, the, uh, with Forest England's lead archaeologist? Absolutely. Um, trees are really interesting as well because you can actually, un you, you know, what's the difference between a woodland and a forest? Well, uh, you know, uh, I, I live near South Yorkshire. What's really critical about South Yorkshire is its uh, farming regime was about wood pasture. Yeah? And so if you go into that landscape, you'll find hundreds of aisled palms because that was, that was predominantly what the trees and the, and the landscape and the agricultural system was actually dictating. So again, you get this amazing to and flow of, you know, and I, you know, I often point out this amazing statistic that we probably have more trees now than we had in the Iron Age except the problem with our trees now is we tend to plant them as commercial forests in all those terribly, terribly long straight lines. Yeah? And very, very densely planted. Well, actually, in the Iron Age, the trees were probably 
far more like wood pasture, you know, with, with heathland like this dotted with trees. So again, it's a really interesting balance about understanding how those things actually evolve and change. But what we're actually seeing now is a sort of this merging of all these issues, you know, whether it's climate change, um, whether it's actually allowing nature to breathe a little bit more, it's, it's the needing to house more people, it is also you know, the whole, the whole, you know, how's our economy going to function in many ways? It's sort of coming together in a, in a sort of moment. And I think we'll see that when COP26 happens in Glasgow this year. That's that's brilliant response. And there's so many good poignant points in there. Really, really useful food, food for thought. Um, and it quite, leads on quite nicely to, um, to some questions that Derek's actually sent us. So uh, whilst he couldn't be here, um, he... He has recorded some questions, but I thought I'd give give it a go at being Derek for the first one at least. So let me get into my best Derek sort of um, impressions here. Oi, right, mate! Oh, right. Neil, as someone responsible for Britain's archaeology, and Lawrence, as someone responsible for creating the archaeology of England's largest landholding, how do we rise to the challenge of communicating the anthropogenic nature of much of the landscape, while so much of it has been uh, appreciated as being natural. I think that was a pretty good Derek impression. What do you reckon, Guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, can't, you can talk. Can, your, your voice softened nicely. Yeah, good. good. You've broken the, the third wall there of the sound guy. <laughs> Neil, I guess you can respond first to that. Any thoughts? To me, it's about telling great stories. It's actually about understanding what our personal relationship is to a place right now and right here in the present. And so for the Festival of Archaeology, we've set up a project that we're actually doing that anyone can do, which is called the Story of Spaces and Places. So you can go on the festival website, you can click the link through to Spaces and Places, and you can upload a photograph of a place that is meaningful to you. And then what we want you to do is we want you to tell us why. We then want you to use six words to describe why that place is meaningful to you. Three to say what the place means to you, and three to say how the place actually feels. We're then doing some work with Southampton University, who are going to do some analysis on those responses that will actually give us a better understanding of sort of the health and well-being, the zeitgeist of what places actually mean to people. Now, I'm absolutely convinced when we start to actually look at that, Heritage stories will start to percolate through that, that narrative, those discussions. Natural environment stories will start to percolate through those things. And will that's how we'll see this completely blended response in the human mind. People don't walk out and say, oh, I'm just going to go to the historic environment today. Oh, look, I've jumped into it. I'm in the historic environment. Oh, no, I'm going to do a bit of natural environment today. We just walk out our front doors and we experience place. I think for me, the really important thing is how do we help people? How do we give them the tools, the eyes, the sounds, the tastes to actually experience place? Last night when we were out um, in, in the New Forest, we got onto the heath and I said to you, wow, there's a smell here. There's a smell here. And you went to sorry. the plant. <laughs> no, it wasn't that sort of, no, no, very good. But it was, and you went to, you're going to have to remind me the name of the plant now. Bog myrtle. Bog myrtle. Mm. And we picked that. And, and, and that was just, you know, exactly that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's it is sound, it is, it is taste, it is smell, it's actually noise. You know, there's a brilliant wind here. Why is there, why do we hear the wind? Because it's blowing through this amazing shelter belt of uh, scotch pines. Humans put those there. 
spot on and I, I'd agree with a lot of what you just said. I guess from, from Forestry England's point of view, as, as carrying on from Derek's question there, I think it's a lot about the narrative as well. I think um, it's, it's easy for organisations to focus on a particular area and sell that, but um, it, it's important for archaeologists and organisations such as yourselves to champion the the, the visibility, the, the role, the importance, the, the interwoven nature of the historic environment with, within whatever it is that that, that particular organisation or that, that, that demographic's been promoted. So ad advising people, sharing that story, highlighting how easy it is to bring the historic environment into that larger discussion is, is something that could be done really easily and get some really good benefits. I think the Forest Estate's really interesting for me because actually it's got a historic component that people don't often talk about. Mm. So again, the, the, you know, the origins of the Forestry Commission Forestry England comes out of the First World War and the need for the country to try and be self-sufficient in wood. Well, I mean, I've done a lot of work up on the North York Moors and the North York Moors Forest District, which is amazing. And what are you going to explore the camps that were actually set up in 1919? and you look at the, the origins and the layout of those camps, they're military camps. They've come straight out of the First World War. But what's fascinating is when you get into the 1920s, um, because of the unemployment issues that go on in the 1920s, the planting of the forest becomes an employment scheme. And so people are shipped in from the industrial areas of Newcastle and West Yorkshire. And what you get is this amazing sudden blend because many of those people are, you know, have Irish origin names. Yeah, and they're suddenly on the North York Moors, they're interacting with the local community, and you get this amazing sort of bubble, this dis dispersia of people and mixing that actually happens. But you then go and look at the camps, and they built brilliant things. They built tennis courts, they built swimming pools, they built an entire lifetime infrastructure. So the actual, the actual conversation of what it means, that's where we should be starting, because... You know, there are amazing stories, even in the planting and the management of that actual woodland, that, again, we, we overlook because we suddenly want to jump into the historic environment. We want to, we want to you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of form of time travelling. Maybe you're not allowed to see anything until you're on the barrow. Yeah. Now you're on the barrow, you're allowed to talk about the barrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah? Well, actually, for me, it's the journey to the barrow. Yeah, it's the people you meet and the conversations you have on the way. Yeah, and there's, there's a few themes that come together there throughout our discussion. And I guess one, one point to go back to is your, your comment earlier about rows of tree planting and things like that. And actually what we're, we're at this crux at the moment where government policy sees tree planting as a, as a, a big push. There's going to be a, a lot of rewilding and, and um, na nature, nature creation and, and, and supporting. But, but that's the approach to that planting and the, the, uh, the, the ideas behind it is very different to that, that tr traditional planting plantations that you mentioned earlier that perhaps go up to the, the 1990s and, and, and obviously much earlier. But now, now we're, again, we're going to see that landscape change where there might be felling, there might be tree creation, but it's going to be in a style that hasn't necessarily been developed or, or focused on um, to date. So that, again, it's in 100 years time, there's going to be some really different landscapes to explore and, and appreciate. Okay, so again, well, I, I, this is so. This is a subject I really, really love, and it, it really drives me because actually it was different a hundred years ago, right? So one of the things I'm doing as I go around on my trip is I'm using the Victoria County History new app, um, the History of English Places, and it's absolutely brilliant. So again, last night we were at um, Holmesley camping site, and I went on Victoria County Histories, and there was no sign of any of that. Yeah, but what was also missing was the Second World War airfield. Yeah, but the campsite is there because the airfield's there. 
Yeah, and there's a, so actually they're all both within a hundred years. Those changes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what I find really, really fascinating is we all say we get scared about change. Yeah, but change is the I would say it's the, one of the only inherent things about human existence that we're all going to change. Unfortunately, we are all going to die. You know, this is what happens. Yeah, and but sometimes how we relate to change is really fascinating. Okay, and so. Um, on uh, Tuesday, we had our high streets takeover day because, of course, the high streets are going through a really interesting period of existence at the moment. But everyone's noticing this change in the high street. But what's really interesting is it's not actually change. So if you take a high street, I would argue that the shopping high street we're familiar with is less than 100 years old. The high street actually was the high street, normally from the castle to the church. It's, it's where the main high-end activity happened. And they were very, very dynamic places. Industry, selling, living, you know, there were, wasn't one thing to define it. It wasn't all just shops, yeah? They, that picture of the shop in High Street, you know, really is early 20th century and onwards, yeah? Now, what's fascinating, if you go to any High Street today, there will be not one shop that's been there over 100 years. Mm -hmm. There are a few, very, very rare. Yeah, so the oldest probably in York now is Marks and Spencers, possibly not in its oldest location. Yeah, every other shop has changed use. The name of the shop's changed. It's still been a shop, but the name of the shop has changed. Yeah, the activity going on in the shop has changed. But what's really incredible now is we're all noticing a difference. We never noticed, we never complained about the shops changing. We possibly changed, moaned about banks becoming Starbucks. <laughs> But, you know, there was still activity. What we're noticing now is inertia. And that inertia is empty premises. So the, the really interesting thing is the shops have closed. They're shutting. They're not changing. They're just nothing's happening. And so it's actually the inertia that we're actually spotting and concerned and worried about, not the change. And I think there's a whole conversation we need to have around change. And this goes back into the climate change discussion. This goes back into the discussion about coastal erosion. Uh, tomorrow I'm going down to Cornwall, I'm going to the Lizard, and I'm going to meet Caitlin de Silvery, and we're going to talk about inevitable loss. What do you, how do you cope with coastal erosion and what does it actually mean? Well, again, I think we've got to really create a far more dynamic conversation about change. And sometimes for me, certainly in heritage, the moment of loss is actually when heritage practitioners finally become their most creative. It's the moment where the shackles seem to be thrown off and they, we suddenly go, oh, we can do something. Yeah, well, I want to, you know, if we're going to think about all these new trees and where they're going to go, why don't we go, oh, we can do something straight away. Now, why don't we do it now? Why don't we take a really creative approach? Why don't we use the woodland we're going to plant and create to create great stories and narratives in our landscape? Yeah? Why don't we interweave the trees with the, with the environment we see around us, create great places to visit? Archaeology is brilliant to create honey spots. So if you want to manage nature, get some archaeology on your site because people will go to that. Yeah? And then we can actually take a lighter approach, maybe to some places where there's some very, very sensitive fauna or flora. That's, that's what it's about. It's a really integrated conversation. And nobody's about, it's not about I'm better than you or I'm you know, more important. You know, and, and all those structures that say that are human invented legislation and decrees. Yeah? The, the, the environment never invented any of that. Yeah? Again, so this is all a conversation about humanity and what it means to be human. I suppose that's, that's the really interesting conversation that I've got 
in my head about them at the moment about what is the CBA, the Council of British Archaeology, what is archaeology? Well, fundamentally, we're a subject about exploring what it means to be human, both now and in the past. I'm not going to say it's about what will be in the future, because that's for the future to decide, but it's fundamentally about what it means to be human today. And we have this amazing time depth of knowledge and exploring that we bring to this you know, humanness conversation. I think when you place us in there, archaeology is about climate change, archaeology is about economic development, archaeology is about health and well-being, archaeology is nature, archaeology is the environment. And wow, there you go, we're, we're not about the past, we're all here and active and dynamic and creative. Yeah, no, that's pretty, that's perfect. Um, before I move on to, to Derek's next question, um, just with regards to your honey pot site suggestions, I wonder if my bee gardens might be a good option for really bringing people away. <laughs> what is amazing is they're so subtle and and because you could just go just wandering around that landscape, you just, they just pop up mm-hmm. and I think they're nice. And I think, and I think that, I think what they also show is that beautiful integrated nature. You know, a bee won't survive without the plants and the flowers and the nectar. And you then put those next to the horses. We're giving you the answer of what the bee gardens are here. Uh, I have tweeted that as a question that I want people oh, to answer. Gonna, what uh, are they? I'm going to put the answer out by the time this podcast goes live. It'll be fine. So, so what's brilliant about them is, is that they, they are a piece of the historic environment that shows that total integration. So the bee garden is where you placed your beehive, but you put a, a form of a palisade around it to in order that the bee hive was not knocked over by the new forest ponies. And I think that's brilliant. I, I think it's one of the best stories I've come across. <laughs> okay, so uh, what I'll do, we, we have got another question from Derek. Um, I'll let him ask this one though. Hi, Lawrence and Neil. I hope you're having a nice time in sunny Purbeck. I'm sorry I can't be with you, but I'm away in Athens at the moment. I do have a couple of questions I'd quite like to ask, though. Career in Ruins has always aimed to show the diversity of archaeology to non-archaeologists. Lawrence, how do you think we're doing? And Neil, what message would you like to send to future archaeologists? It's hard to know how we're doing, but I think uh, our aims are sound and um, our engagement is there. I'd certainly encourage people to promote us further if to those that, who might not have, not have listened in. But um, I think our deliberate aim, is, as Derek says, is to, to really keep it broad ranging and show that the, the, the diversity in the subject. And you, you can specialise in, in flint tools, or you can specialise in survey, or you can specialise in landscape, or you can specialise in digital technologies, or loads of other amazing things and that that's the the specialness of our our discipline and our subject thanks derek um for me i think there is lots more we need to do and what we really need to focus on is how we draw in different perspectives to archaeology and that how we help people understand that their own life journey and their own perspective is absolutely critical for us to understand um, the material we encounter. We, we don't encounter it in an objective bubble. Um, you know, for me, archaeology actually is entirely subjective. It's about who we are in the present. So that's why I want to hear from different people um, and from, a, you know, everybody really, because everyone's got a conversation to have around archaeology and about who we are. We spoke earlier about archaeology being about being human and being human is everything 
about what happens to us today. It's all those perspectives, it's all those challenges. So, you know, archaeology has got a long way to go from this current perception that we're about people who wield trowels and are obsessed with the past to actually understanding we're at about a conversation of humanness in the present. We just draw on this amazing time depth. Yeah, our storybook is thousands of years old, but the best thing about our storybook is it's actually not finished. We're writing the storybook right now, and that is about everybody's perspectives it's about everyone's life experiences and i think that's some of the really dynamic um, and challenging conversations we've seen over the last year especially after uh, the george floyd black lives matters the toppling of the colston statue you know I, I would say colston for me was actually an incredibly creative piece of heritage experience yeah really really challenging really challenging but all the conversations around that were really challenging and we saw new and different voices come into that argument and I think there's going to be a lot of work we need to do to actually make ourselves more welcoming and opening to some of those sorts of challenges. Fantastic. So it's brilliant we're here at this reconstructed Iron Age house um, I suppose the first thing that struck me was it's quite small, um, but it actually, you know, it feels homely. You can run your hand along uh, the thatch, the reed thatch. And it, it smells incredible as yeah, well. No, yeah, no, it, it smells earthly. And then I think the other lovely absolute thing, this is one house I'm actually going to have to bend down to get into. Right, so we don't want the sound of you hitting your head as you go through the door. Uh, so that's, no, there. That's the, uh... um, but I don't normally have to duck, but this is exciting because <laughs> I am going Right, watch your head. <sighs> wow. Isn't it amazing? And it's just so cool inside. It's so much cooler and we're out of the, yeah. the breeze of it now and, as well. And, and, and the breeze has gone and what we're seeing is we're seeing amazing wattle walls um, that they've been half wattled and then we've got the daub and you can see how it's just been slapped on and oh, the best. It's the best. Bit, you can see finger marks. Which is the whole point. This is this, you can see the human in the in in the actual process. What's also really interesting is it's, it's you can see how it's cracked and dried. So actually keeping it on must have been a real a real challenge. And then I think I think I really love about coming in there, which is absolutely fantastic. They've clearly been down to the local building supplies, uh, Bradford's to actually get their kit. Archaeology brought to you by Bradford's. By Bradford's, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> So the Purbeck National Nature Reserve is actually quite a large area. So the, the location we chose to visit today is actually the Arn, which is managed by the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, or the RSPB for short. And we're really fortunate today to be joined by Matt Williams, who's the archaeologist for the RSPB and also Time Team Legend. So thank you, Matt, for joining us. <laughs> thank you for asking me. Uh, it's, it's so great to be here. And whilst looking at this amazing roundhouse that, that, that's been constructed as part of the National Nature Reserve's um, project, um, there's also tons of amazing archaeology here from salt, salt productions to um, to World War II infrastructure, prehistoric round barrows. I just wonder if you could give us a bit of a background around the RSPB as a whole and your, your role within within it as the, as the archaeologist. Well, um, as an organisation, we own and manage huge amounts of land uh, across the UK. Um, 
of course we manage it for nature and ecology but of course there's going to be a lot of heritage features on that, that on those areas and that's where I get involved really we've got to make sure that we're looking after them we're not damaging them and we're doing our best to preserve them and enhance them for future generations that's amazing I, I guess it's it's an addition to the attraction to your sites you you've got members that come and look at your birds look at your amazing wildlife and you've got that additional asset of the historic environment as yeah well. and here at Arn that's a, is a really good example of that because there's beautiful uh, heathland here and coastline but we also have um, up on the highest point of Arn a World War II gun battery um, which is a scheduled monument um, and uh, you can go up and visit that that's a very popular attraction uh, there are barrows around on the heath, so the Bronze Age, so good, uh, what, four or five thousand years earlier than the World War II stuff. Um, and there is, of course, this um, Iron Age <laughs> as well, which isn't original, but uh, looks pretty good. It's pretty cool, isn't it? We'd certainly recommend people to come and have a go and, uh, with some of the, the daubing that's going on or, and some of the activities that are being planned. Um, in terms of sites, your favourite sites, archaeological sites, I appreciate you're relatively early into the into post, but have you got any sites on the RSPB estate that's really caught your eye? Well, I cover England and Wales, and I'm afraid I'm going to shift across the border here fine, and say that in North Wales we do have some amazing sites and my favourite one I think is the Iron Age Hill Fort on Anglesey at our South Stack Reserve so it's a good distance away from here but coming a close second uh, are the round barrows that we have on a lot of reserves down here on the south coast which are absolutely beautiful the setting of them is always stunning um, and so it's just great to come down here and have a look at them. So well worth remembering when, when you're going to these amazing RSPB reserves that there are plenty of archaeological features to be to be seen as well. Um, on, on the podcast, we have a few standard questions, and while we've got you, I might pinch you for one particular one. So Derek and I have actually got a working time machine, okay. and, and any guest on the podcast gets a free ride, return journey, um, on that time machine. And all we need to know is where you'd like to go, what you'd like to see, and why that is. Um, now, I've thought about this a lot over my life, obviously. Had some quite in-depth pub conversations, probably too in-depth sometimes. But I quite often come back to a period which I just mentioned, which is the Bronze Age. Mm -hmm mainly because they clearly had some very strange ritual ideas. They had very interesting burial methods. They had very strange, um, what we call depositions. They would make offerings of very, very high value goods. And I'd just really love to know what earth was going on when they were doing all this kind of stuff. Um, similar to the Neolithic period as well, uh, that would come a close second for a similar reason really. What was Stonehenge for? What did they actually do? If I was to suddenly appear while they were having one of their big sessions around Stonehenge, <laughs> what would I see and what would I hear? That's what really interests me. What do you think you'd see in here? Um, <laughs> I don't think there'll be a lot of chanting, a lot of shouting um, and some very, very funny clothes. Some drinking? I do a fair amount of drinking as well. Yeah. Okay, and before we let you go, we, we should pick your brains. Time team is kicking off again, a couple of months until the first two excavations take place, and um, you're involved in that. And can you give us any insight, any, anything you're looking forward to? Any? Uh, yes, I'll be back. A similar role as to before, really, which is getting down and dirt in the trenches. We're going to be excavating a Roman villa and an Iron Age site in Cornwall, two amazing looking sites. I'm really looking forward to getting back on site with a lot of the old team and a lot of new faces as well. And just that exciting buzz that you have when Time Team is really on a roll. It's going to be great. Amazing. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
we've entered a roundhouse and I guess a bit more background would be required for this. So I mentioned that we're in the National Nature Reserve, the Purbex National Nature Reserve. There's been a, a group of um, organisations that have looked at the um, the recovery fund to, for support coming out of lockdown, coming out of COVID and how, how they might look at sustainable tourism. And they've actually identified that the historic environment's a really important peg to pin some of this sustainable tourism on. And whilst they've got that, that natural environment that we talked about, banner that people come to and enjoy, how can they utilise and promote the historic assets that are found within this this amazing landscape as well? So as part of that, they've teamed up with the Ancient Technology Centre, who are based at Dorset County Council, and they do this amazing work whereby they review archaeological excavations, scientific data, spatial data, to understand how historic, prehistoric, medieval, Bronze Age, Iron Age structures were made and they use the archaeological record to identify material types they use the archaeological record to identify the size and the composition um uh, how how many posts were used to hold the building up how many struts might have used what what type of daub might have been used whether it's from bradford sand or whether it's from uh, dorset sands for example but um what's happened with this particular project is they've teamed up with the ancient technology center who have used a host of different archaeological records to reconstruct this incredible iron age roundhouse which we currently find ourselves in as i said they use archaeological records a lot of this is based on um, excavations near glastonbury we've got locally sourced hazel that's uh, that's come from the rspb estate we they unfortunately they couldn't quite get the locally sourced daubing material but it still looks incredible and um, the thatch itself is made from reeds and whilst not from just directly opposite us because we are in a nature reserve it, it's identical to the types of reeds that we that we find and interesting point on this is that Derek mentioned to me that the reeds are an introduction from from humans so everything well, that we look at even if you look at the mud flats and the um, vegetation seen within those that they've got historic human influence which is just fascinating but a really nice engaging project they've been working with local volunteers to construct it they're adding the daub and that there's a big opening event that's going to be taking place as part of the festival of archaeology um next monday uh yes yeah, so they're going to they're, they're going to be launching the project planning and then the event will be on the bank holiday weekend so really exciting and what i love about this is we're looking at technology that doesn't rely on plastics we're looking at technology that effectively has a complete um synthesis with the natural environment around here and again so there's so much we can learn from this about you know the materials that you can actually use that have a you know might have a much lighter footprint um on on the environment but also that amazing thing that again this reflects a time where humans worked with the worked with the landscape and worked with the environment they didn't necessarily control everything so one of the things i really like about that conversation is that you know wind was important as a source of power and sustaining life yeah but as soon as you get things like uh, the steam engine and the internal combustion engine wind no longer becomes that controlling factor so we're going back to a to an existence of, of imagining what that might actually look like and what that might actually feel like. And that's really important to actually understand what type of environment and society we might want to become in terms of actually understanding sustainability and those sorts of issues. So it's fascinating to be in here. Career in Ruins are known for having developed a functioning time machine. So, Neil, if you could go back into archaeology's history and change one thing, what would you change? 
Oh, that, well, that's so. If I could go back into archaeology's history and change one thing, what would be? That's quite. That could be quite a controversial question. I would like to go back to explore how and why the process of commercial archaeology really came about in the early 90s. Not because I don't. Uh, uh, not because I disagree with it, because I think it is really important and it has given archaeology an entirely new meaning. But I think what we didn't realise is just how bad that would be for broadening participation and perspectives in archaeology. Um, and I would certainly say, as the director of the CBA, you can see the impact on voluntary archaeology, um, what we now refer to as community archaeology. But what we're really talking about is non-commercial archaeology, again, or non-academic archaeology. That volunteer effort used to be the lifeblood of most excavations up until 1990. Yeah. And I feel that they brought in a completely different perspective to the output of archaeology. Not archaeological recording, because that's just one output, but to what archaeology was as a human endeavour. When you listen to people who did all that voluntary stuff, it always seems to be so much richer and deeper. Yeah? Now, I know, because I've done commercial archaeology, it is rich and deep, but what we seem to have got to is a scenario where it's crunched down, you know, it's, it's packaged in such a way that we have lost the richness and deepness. And for me, archaeology, if it really wants to survive, it needs to unpack again that richness and deepness, those individuals' perspectives, those stories of being an archaeologist, of doing archaeology, of the interactions with archaeology and the, and the world and the, the humans we live in and around, that is the most important thing in archaeology. And we see lots of conversations about funding for universities and planning changes. But for me, if we don't start talking about archaeology in a more engaging way, in a more open way to non-identifying archaeologists, yeah, non-identifying archaeologists, and let's just think, Profiling the profession suggested there are about 7,000 archaeologists. If we look at university undergraduates, 2,000 undergraduates a year, that's 6,000. Our last survey of community groups, 9,700. Yeah. So there aren't terribly many of us mm -hmm. on this island. Yeah. And there are, you know, nearly 70 million people who live on this island. So there's an awful lot of people who don't identify as archaeologists. Well, what do they think about what we're doing? What do they want to hear from us? What do they want to listen to us? If I was to change one thing, it's not that we went down the commercial route. It's actually we also reflected that, that we needed to keep a really strong, loud, vocal connection with the rest of the world about what we do in archaeology. Uh, we can still do that, and people do great things. Don't get me wrong, there are some brilliant projects out there. But we just got to do more, 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 more. And that's why we should all be supporting the Festival of Archaeology, because that's what it's all about. Neil, thank you so much. That's a brilliant answer. Before we go, how can people find out more? 
you can head to the CBA website, so that is archaeologyuk.org, or you can head to the festival website, so that's festival.archaeologyuk.org, and you can find out all the details about the festival. You can follow me on Twitter, at Redfern Neil, and you can find out all about my journey and my travels that I've been actually doing. We have whole new media that you can get into, including a brand new TikTok channel, and yes, I have been on the TikTok channel, and my daughter, 16-year-old, is entirely horrified uh, that I have done that. I think I am too. But anyway, we're really exploring lots of new ways to help you join in with this journey around archaeology. You can become a CBA member. We've got an offer on for the whole of the festival that will be extended probably for the rest of August as well, where you can get half price membership or you can upgrade your subscription to full membership for free. So come and get involved, come and help us be better, challenge us to do things differently. We want to hear you, we want to hear from you, we want to hear what you want us to be talking about. Um, so we're really open to all those sorts of conversations. And then finally, if any of you have been involved in one of the festival activities, please again head over to the festival website, festival.archaeologyuk.org and fill out one of our evaluation forms. The success of the festival will be hearing from you about what you liked, what you might not have liked and what we can do better because we are really committed to doing it better.